0: By the late 1940s, Isaiah Kennan was actively probing the Department of Justice Farah unit for weaknesses he could exploit. By the late 1950s and early 1960s, Kennan and his front organizations were driving truckloads of tax-exempt foreign cash and lobbying influence across the spans of deception erected over the U.S. Department of Justice and around public scrutiny. Isaiah Kennan worked closely with Abba Ibn, Israel's ambassador to the United Nations, in the late 1940s. Ibn soon became Israel's ambassador to Washington and would later rise in various Israeli government ministries. Kennan was charged once again with heading press relations, only now on behalf of the Israeli embassy's Office of Information, an organization specifically established registered and funded to distribute Israeli government propaganda within the United States. Kennan's tendencies toward non-disclosure and misleading filings, which had landed other foreign agents in jail during his tenure at the Israeli Office of Information in New York City, are only now apparent. The Israel Office of Information's first FARAH filing, Form FA-2, And the Department of Justice's responses, released under the Freedom of Information Act in March 2008, are a case in point. The form was originally received and date-stamped by the Department of Justice Ferris Section on October 12, 1948. On October 26, 1948, the Farah office acknowledged receipt of the filing and offered the Israeli embassy the courtesy of choosing mid-year or year-end calendar reporting dates. The Israeli embassy responded, availing itself of June and December reporting deadlines. After an internal review, on June 17, 1949, the Farah office cited the initial filing as deficient and notified the Israeli Office of Information's Washington office, quote, An examination of your registration statement, filed on October 12, 1948, reveals certain deficiencies which are noted below. It is requested that these deficiencies be corrected in filing the next supplemental statement. Internal Department of Justice working papers and the official notice reveal the Israel Office of Information not only omitted four required supplementary exhibits, including detailed propaganda dissemination reports, but also neglected to mention the existence of an entirely separate information office already up and running in California. The Farah forum required disclosure of, quote, all branches and local units of registrant and all other components or affiliated groups or organizations, unquote. The required exhibits the IOI failed to file would have given the Farah office a clear picture of the organization's geographical span, its contractual agreements with the Israeli consulate, and the terms under which Israel Office of Information material was entering the U.S. news stream via continuous press relations, suggested newspaper articles, paid placements, and magazines. During the Israel Office of Information's startup period, the Ferris section was rarely given complete information about agent lobbying, the specific content of important radio addresses and appearances, or the public relations efforts targeting prominent journalists that Kennan pursued, mainly from behind the scenes. But the Ferris section review could not detect other far more deliberate omissions by Isaiah Kennan that would have presented an accurate and early picture of the network of contacts of the Israel Office of Information's most important individual foreign agent and his early lobbying. As co-director of the IOI, Kennan was required to file his own individual foreign agent declaration, Form FA-1, called a short form with the Department of Justice. In his declaration, Kennan neglected to disclose the most important data sought by Farah, his close working relationships with Israeli government officials such as Iban and scores of others. Kennan's own writing about these relationships many decades later, after he retired, fills in important historical records about the founding of Israel and its initial lobbying forays. The Israel Office of Information's two declared offices in New York City and Washington, D.C. were modest. 2210 Massachusetts Avenue is northwest of DuPont Circle, nearly four miles from Congress. In 2008, the building housed the Embassy of Sudan. This can be contrasted with APAC's present office at 441st Street Northwest, which is two minutes from the Capitol and eight minutes from the White House. The IOI New York office, close to Central Park and less than two miles from the U.N. building, last sheltered a treatment center for patients with obsessive-compulsive disorder. The Israel Office of Information's first Farah declaration in 1948 understandably did not include overall budget information or payments from foreign principals, since this was still being worked out from the budget of the overall Israeli mission. Nevertheless, its overall budget from the Israeli Ministry for Foreign Affairs grew to almost $50,000 a month by 1950, about half a million dollars in today's dollars, for New York, Washington, and Los Angeles offices. Kennan came to understand the burdens of FARA compliance as he personally signed off on the Israel Office of Information's FARA declaration for January 1 through June 30, 1950 for all three offices. Kennan listed himself as in charge of the New York office, Mina Davidovich as running the D.C. office, and Shirley Brostoff-Lewis as leading up the Los Angeles operation. Ken enlisted Y.H. Rosencrantz at the Israeli embassy as the new Israel Office of Information press advisor. Rosencrantz, formerly a captain of the Israeli army and foreign editor of the Palestine Post, was then pressing an urgent PR campaign against the internationalization of Jerusalem. The Israel Office of Information reported that Moshe Perlman at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Israel was its solitary foreign principle. Kennan listed Rita Grossman as another New York IOI office employee on the Declaration. Indeed, Grossman had accompanied Kennan from the Jewish Agency on to the United Nations delegation, and then to the Israel Office of Information. From there, she would follow Kennan all the way to APAC lobbying and other public relations activities on behalf of Israel. Kennan remembered her first day fondly, quote, When the United Nations opened its special session to determine the fate of Palestine in 1947, I was besieged by the press and I urgently needed an assistant to handle the office while I was at the UN. In the meantime... Jesse Lurie of the Jerusalem Post, served as my temporary assistant. That was a momentous day for me, too, because on that day, Gromyko made his astonishing speech endorsing partition, and because Rita Grossman became my first assistant, a post. She filled brilliantly for about 18 years. She worked for me at the UN, and then in Washington. She was my indispensable aide at political conventions, and fundraising meetings across the country. Grossman continued working for Cannon until 1965, a traumatic year for the American Zionist Council and an important moment for AIPAC. As Kennan reviewed and edited the mandatory annexes to foreign agent registration reports, he strategized how to lay claim on U.S. taxpayer dollars through direct foreign aid from the government, as opposed to the scattered charitable donations and investments from individuals that were the mainstay of Israel bond campaigns attended by members of the Israel Office of Information. Kennan's filing divulged cursory details of the Israel Office of Information's Israel bond campaign meetings and community fundraising gatherings at regional Hadassah and Zionist Organization of America chapters, as well as film and radio clip distribution and cultural outreach activities. But his public relations activity disclosure provided few additional details. Kennan did list himself as the top broadcast PR producer of the Israel Office of Information. While he made only 22 formal speeches, three less than Ruth Goldschmidt, Cannon delivered 83 separate radio broadcasts in six months. No other Israel Office of Information officer listed any. Yet even as Israel Office of Information activity ballooned throughout the early 1950s, IOI declarations continue to be cited as deficient by the Ferris section office. For every proper listing of a new or departing employee, such as research assistant Mordecai Chertoff, the uncle of the George W. Bush administration's Department of Homeland Security director, who resigned on February 2, 1951, or activities disclosure the FARA office cited missing employees, missing copies of the actual Israeli government propaganda distributed or propaganda circulated without a proper FARA disclosure label. FARA section's recommended label, when affixed to material, left little to the reader's imagination. A copy of this material is filed with the Department of Justice where the required statement under the Foreign Agents Registration Act of insert your name and address, as an agent of name and address of your foreign principal, is available for public inspection. Registration does not indicate approval of this material by the United States government. All publicly circulated Israel Office of Information Communications had to bear such onerous declarations. Kennan's writings reveal acute insights about the attributes of effective public relations. IOI FARA disclosures gave him firsthand experience about how revelatory and thus restrictive the filings could be in their listings of people, expenditures, locations, and topics of public or private events, and required duplicates of images, recordings, and print documents. This would not do. In 1953, the director of the FBI filed a classified internal report to Assistant Attorney General Warren Olney III, alleging that the Israel Office of Information was not properly labeling all of the propaganda it was circulating. On June 2, 1953, Olney responded that the propaganda filed at his office did bear the proper disclosure stamps. Whether the FBI had goofed and sent the wrong source documents in its communication or misinterpreted the labeling requirements, the matter ended. Since only found that an original copy of the propaganda had in fact been filed in the Ferris section, no further action to see whether propaganda circulating on American streets, bore the proper label, was taken. The DOJ exhibited tolerance for the ongoing irregularities, but Kennan would remain on the Department of Justice radar for many more years, despite his best efforts. Kennan's writings reveal that he chafed under pharaoh registration. He came to believe that the degree of disclosure required to lobby on behalf of the Israeli embassy as a foreign agent would never allow him to win the level of unconditional aid and influence he felt Israel deserved. The Israel Office of Information's open approach was encapsulated in its mission. The purpose of the Israel Office of Information is to provide accurate and up-to-date information in the United States on all aspects of the state of Israel including political, economic, cultural, social, and other activities. Kennan knew as a public relations practitioner that Farah would never allow him to properly frame issues in a sophisticated way that transformed and sold their presentation from Israeli needs to perceived American interests. Kennan's own preference for stealth can be seen on his personal 1948 FA-1 short-form declaration. Cursory review of Cannon's personal registration statement as director of the New York Israel Office of Information filed with the Department of Justice on October 12, 1948 would have revealed it was unacceptable. Rather than disclose the titles and subjects of publications he had circulated in the previous six months at the Jewish Agency and United Nations, as required, Kennan simply noted that any he personally deemed covered under Farah had already 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 been filed at his discretion. In reality, Kennan's personal discretion was quite forgiving. He never let his position as a foreign agent of the Israeli government keep him away from Capitol Hill, noting in his biography that he actively lobbied Congress to provide arms for Israel in 1950. I spent a week in Washington, in january nineteen fifty, to voice concern to friends on Capitol Hill. Kennan never disclosed this crucial congressional lobbying foray or documents delivered in his Farah declarations. The Farah section never discovered the omissions or investigated it. Kennan's brevity included even his own name. In the first Farah disclosure form question, Kennan stated that his full name was Isaiah Leo Kennan, to a subsequent question regarding all other names ever used and when each was used, Cannon simply responded, none. Today, even with modern computer keyword search and data retrieval, it is difficult to find any of Cannon's writings or associations by searching for Isaiah Leo Cannon. That is because most of his articles since the Ohio newspaper days were filed under the byline IL Cannon. Indeed, Cannon usually abbreviated his first and middle names to initials in his signature. His nickname, among friends, was written Psy, or alternately S Y. Any Department of Justice investigator following up on Kennan's public relations activities in the 1940s and early 1950s, limited to index card files and print reference guides to major newspapers, would not have been able to find Kennan's articles or locate any of his associates. But Kennan's connections to the fledgling Israeli government after serving at the Jewish Agency in the United Nations were legion. As mentioned... Among Kennan's closest associates was the legendary Aubrey Abba Iban, who served with Kennan at the Jewish Agency and later the UN delegation while simultaneously acting as ambassador to the US. Iban was a brilliant orator, and Kennan reveled in the honor of working with him. For a decade, I was privileged to work with Iban, both at the UN and later in Washington. At the UN, Kennan also worked closely with delegation leader Moshe Charette, who later became the first foreign minister of Israel. In 1946, Kennan traveled to Palestine from Paris at the direction of David Ben-Gurion to help spring Charette from jail. He was being held on arms smuggling charges. Kennan noted, David Ben-Gurion, who led the struggle to establish a Jewish state, was responsible for my first visit to Palestine in 1946. Ben-Gurion then lived at the Royal Monceau Hotel in Paris, and I had a room nearby. He was in Paris because he had left Israel to escape arrest and detention by the British. He directed activities of the Jewish agency and of the Haganah, Israel's defense forces, from his hotel room. I was then in Paris, representing the American Jewish Conference with, along with major constituent organizations, was meeting to consider the future of surviving Jews in Europe. One Saturday morning, there was the alarming report that the British had arrested leaders of the Jewish Agency, accusing them of smuggling arms in anticipation of an impending struggle with both the British and the Arabs. Moshe Charette was one of them. I knocked on Ben-Gurion's door. He was furious. There's been a pogrom, he shouted at me. Go there, go there at once, you can help them. You are a newspaper man. Kennan traveled to Palestine where he then nearly died at the hands of Menachem Begin. By 1946, Ben-Gurion had agreed that the Haganah could cooperate with Menachem Begin's Irgun fighters against the British. Begin planned the 1946 terror bombing of the King David Hotel targeting British military units stationed there. Kennan recalls his near brush with death at the hands of these terrorists to be statesmen. He noted After two weeks in Israel, I felt it was time for me to return to Paris. A rickety single engine plane that shuttled between Cairo and Jerusalem was scheduled to leave Jerusalem around 11 a.m. Thought I should use the time to visit the barber shop at the King David Hotel. But the manicurist was not there. It was a Saturday. And so I walked to Ramallah to board a tiny plane, which, it seemed to me, was tied together by shoelaces. An hour or so later, I picked up a newspaper in Cairo at Shepherd's Hotel and read that some 96 British soldiers and civilians had been blown to eternity. Two years later, I learned that Ebon had stopped at the King David Hotel that day to get a haircut. We almost met that day. In eternity said Kennan. The Zionist terrorists who bombed the British headquarters at the King David Hotel also attempted to false flag. They dressed as Arabs and disguised explosives in milk churns. Ninety-one people, only 28 of them British, were killed in the attack. Despite his near-death experience at the hands of one, Kennan had reservations about reporting his tightening ties to legendary Israeli government officials like Ben-Gurion to the U.S. Department of Justice. In Kennan's Farrah Declaration, a question demands, List all your connections, not fully described above, with all foreign governments, foreign political parties, or officials of agencies thereof. Provide space for both officials' names and connections. Kennan simply wrote, None. He then clumsily scrawled his entire first name on the signature line, though he dropped that inconvenience and returned to I.L. Kennan, in his subsequent Farah declarations. Also revealing is Kennan's response to furnish the following information as to all amounts received by you as compensation or otherwise during the three months preceding the filing of this exhibit, directly or indirectly, from the registrant or agent or from any foreign principal of yourself or of the registrant or agent. In June and July of 1948, Cannon received a monthly salary of $916.66 from the Jewish agency, the equivalent of roughly $8,200 today. In August and September, he also received $916.66 each month from the government of Israel. When he left the service of the Israel Office of Information in 1951, Kennan would state in a letter to the Department of Justice that he was actually more of a public relations advisor than an actual employee. Still later, he would be forced to explain to both the Federal Bureau of Investigation and Senator Fulbright... Why he was still receiving funds from the Jewish agency in Israel well into the 1960s in amounts much greater than his old salary of $916. By December of 1950, Cannon was charting his departure from the Israel Office of Information for a more effective, less visible organization. He made no pretext that this new initiative was anything but a response to the demands of the Israeli government. Israelis began looking for a lobbyist to promote the necessary legislation. Would I leave the Israeli delegation for six months to lobby for aid on Capitol Hill? There were other questions. Should I continue my registration as an agent of the Israeli government? Was it appropriate for an embassy to lobby? Embassies talked to the State Department. And American voters talked to their congressmen. Kennan's multiple overlapping leadership positions in major Zionist organizations and his growing ties to entities and political parties in Palestine and later Israel were all covered by Farah. Other visitors to Palestine in 1946 included Abba Hillel Silver, president of the Zionist Organization of America and co-chair of the American Zionist Emergency Council. Dr. Stephen Wise, 1874-1949 was another co-chair, joining Louis Lipsky, former president of the Zionist Organization of America and career Zionist leader. All were simultaneously members of the Jewish Agency Executive, the World Zionist Organization's core financing and colonization entity. Kennan's fair filings disavowed his relationships with all these major leaders of foreign quasi-governmental organizations. The omissions in his filing occurred at a point in time when the Justice Department was very actively enforcing Farah. It is reasonable to deduce from Cannon's later writings that in 1948, his position as a quasi-diplomat for Israel may have led him to believe that he had a future in Israel's fledgling diplomatic corps. If he left the jurisdiction of the U.S. legal system, his Farah declarations would simply no longer matter. The general climate under the Truman administration was also highly favorable. But a critical visit to Israel after a lobbying victory in Congress irrevocably changed his career plans and left him scrambling to purge his FARA records at the U.S. Department of Justice. Kennan began coordinating with the Israelis to undertake stealth lobbying as a purely domestically registered lobbyist late in 1950. On January 17, 1951, Kennan met with Nathan B. Lenvin of the FARA section. In a Department of Justice office memorandum summarizing the meeting, Lenvin filed an internal memo stating that Kennan told him he would be leaving the Israel Office of Information and setting up a public relations business, ostensibly with the Israeli government as his main client. Given Kennan's trajectory in the press and public relations, this was certainly a plausible career move. Lenvin nevertheless advised Kennan that he'd need to keep filing as a foreign agent and even provided him with additional registration forms. Lenvin noted in a memorandum to Files, Mr. Isaiah L. Kennan, Director of Information for the Government of Israel's Mission to the United Nations and one of the officers of the Israel Office of Information, visited my office on January 17, 1951 to discuss his possible obligations under the Foreign Agents Registration Act. In the event, he terminates his present activities and establishes his own public relations business. Kennan stated that his first client would probably be the government of Israel, and consequently I told him that he should file a new registration statement on Form FA-1. I explained to Mr. Kennan that the registration statement of the Israeli Office of Information and the necessity for filing of a new statement. Mr. Kennan stated that he would file a new statement as soon as he commences his activities on behalf of the government of Israel. Suitable forms were given to Mr. Kennan noted Lenvin. Kennan clearly had no intention of ever filing another disclosure with the FERA office. He finalized his actual plans, coordinated in December 1950 with the Israelis to lobby Congress from the tax-exempt U.S. nonprofit American Zionist Council. Kennan wrote on January 31, 1951, It was decided that I should leave the Israeli government and spearhead the lobbying campaign for the Zionist Council. Kennan noted that the American Zionist Council had already started a fledgling education campaign for aid to Israel, but that no legislation has been projected. He quickly got to work, noting that, On February 13, 1951, I notified the Department of Justice that I was withdrawing as an agent of a foreign principal. And I then filed with the clerk of the House and the secretary of the Senate in conformity with domestic lobbying law. The full text of the actual letter Kennan sent to the Department of Justice referred to so briefly suggests a complete severance of any ties to the Israeli government. But he mentioned nothing to the Department of Justice about his plans to domestically register and lobby in Washington. Although it was then on the verge of a period of enforcement malaise, the Department of Justice would have undoubtedly asked Cannon for a new FARA registration. But Cannon made every effort to give the FARA office no grounds for following up with him about any further registration requirements, even downplaying his role leading three Israel Office of Information offices as a paid employee of the Israeli government to that of a mere advisor. Kennan wrote, This is to inform you that effective today, I have resigned from the service of the government of Israel. I have been registered on Exhibit A form as part of the registration of the Israel Office of Information. Since January 1st, I was retained by the government of Israel in an advisory capacity in the field of public relations. However, I have now changed my plans and severed my relations with the Israel government. I would, therefore, request that my name be removed from your lists. Kennan was no doubt familiar with the Ferris statutory language covering withdrawal when he wrote his termination letter to the Ferris section. There's also little doubt that his desire to be removed from your lists, was in earnest. However, that decision was up to the Attorney General, not Isaiah Kennan. The Department of Justice never removed Kennan from their lists and internal files. In turn, Kennan never stopped coordinating his lobbying or receiving payments from Israeli government-related entities. Using funds laundered from Israel into the U.S. to jumpstart lobbying and propaganda. He soon began incorporating a series of nonprofit front organizations under the guise of elite domestic lobby umbrellas that would ultimately merge into the domestically funded, secretive, self-sustaining powerhouse that is APAC. From his perspective, Kennan's timing was fortuitous. The mid to late 1950s were a period of FARA enforcement malaise with registrations below the level of the early 1940s when the law was fresh on the books. The U.S. State Department, formerly in charge of FARA enforcement and zealous about comprehensive registration of agents, was now mostly out of the picture and anyway not in tight FARA oversight coordination with the Department of Justice. President Truman had opened the door for productive U.S.-Israel relations and direct lobby elite to president contacts. Barring any mistakes, Kennan could quietly build his lobby's political power base to a point where not even the appointed attorney general, much less the Ferris section, would want to publicly challenge it. But there were two exceptions. Dwight D. Eisenhower and John F. Kennedy.